Do you trust me? Four simple words contained in one revealing question. Do you trust me? Trust and all that might entail and mean to each one of us can be a loaded topic. Talking about who we trust and why we trust them or who we don't trust. And why we don't trust them is a conversation pregnant with all sorts of thoughts and feelings. That question can be unusually easy to answer on the one hand, and yet it can also be a question that arouses paralyzing heart tremors of fear and insecurity inside us. The way we respond to that short but loaded question typically depends on who is asking the question or what they are asking me to trust them for. Or perhaps, what are they asking me to do for them? You see, trust is a valuable and invisible treasure. It's an invisible commodity we all hold so dear. But we don't touch trust. We don't kind of carry it around like a blanket or a wallet. We can't purchase trust. But trust is still, with all that being said, an invisible treasure that we hold very closely to us everywhere we go. We can earn trust. We can lose trust. We can extend trust. And we can spend years and years trying to restore trust that has been lost. That's why trust is what solid and worthwhile relationships are built upon. Or as Paul David Tripp says about trust in marriage, quote, trust is the soil of which a healthy marriage grows. Trust is the soil of which a healthy marriage grows. And if I were to uh, try to one-up Mr. Tripp, which I don't, would not do a very good job of, I would say the same would be true of every other relationship too, a church, a friendship, a boss, employee, so forth and so on. Trust is also what gives our lives some measure of peace and safety and sanity to it. When you trust police officers are going to protect you, when you trust the doctors are going to prescribe the right medication and treatment for your health condition, or when we actually believe the wisdom found in Proverbs 11, verse 14, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. That's a good verse to memorize. If you're looking for one in the month of June, Proverbs eleven fourteen, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. That's why we look to others to give us advice in life. Trustworthy counselors, trustworthy pastors, trustworthy friends, maybe even a trustworthy father-in-law. As we heard John read from Exodus 18 about Jethro and Moses, read by my own father-in-law, I might add. When you think about it, trust is really what makes life seem more enjoyable and relaxing too. When you're trusting that the plumber is going to fix the pipes so that you can move on and not worry about that toilet. When you trust the HVAC guy to get your air condition back up and running so you can survive the hot and humid Arkansas summer. Or when you trust the manager at Chick-fil-A that he's going to prepare the sandwiches just right so that you can continue on with your day stuffed and satisfied. But even more than all those people, pastors, friends, plumbers, Chick-fil-A managers, 
when we trust that God is working for our good at all times, as Romans 8.28 promises believers, we can go to bed at night restful and reassured instead of anxious and on the edge. We can actually live each day with confidence in the face of the unknown and the uncertainty of our plans, knowing that our Heavenly Father holds our future. Our future is in the hands of our wise and loving and trustworthy Heavenly Father. And see, if there really is more to life than eat, drink, and be merry, if there is more to life than work, work, go to bed, get old, and die, then putting your trust in an all-knowing and all-good God seems more logical than putting your ultimate trust in anyone else. If we're going to die, because we are, that's one thing both Christians and non-Christians can't agree with, if we're going to die, and as Christians, we believe we're going to give an account for our life. And guess what? God tells us ahead of time that the judgment is coming and we're going to give an account for the stewardship of our life, and he tells us ahead of time some things aren't going to matter. They're not going to make it through the fire, and some things will. If all those things are true, if God has told us something ahead of time of what is happening in the future, then trusting and obeying him, no matter how costly it might seem right now, is the wisest decision that each one of us can make. You see, trust in God's sovereignty, his control and his care, and trust in God's ability to work through us and others is what makes trying something new, being pushed outside our comfort zones, not seem irrational and insane anymore. If God doesn't call the equipped, but equips the called, then what is impossible for God? What is impossible for God to do in and through people like me and you? If it is God who equips the called, then let me ask you this morning. What is God calling you to do as you trust him in your life today? This morning we find ourselves studying again in the life of Jesus. And we will specifically look at who the people are that are trusting Jesus with their lives and who the people are that Jesus entrusts his time and his global mission too. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. If you're using the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 489. 489, Mark chapter 3. This morning, we are studying Mark 3, verses 7 to 19. If you haven't been with us, we've been in the Gospel of Mark for some time, and we will be there for some time. So if you haven't seen where we're at up to this point, you can listen to those sermons on the podcast, but hopefully this morning we'll ease you right in to where we left off last week. Please follow with me, starting in Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. 
And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonaragus, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, I have two main headings that will guide our time this morning as we study God's word together. Point number one, the dangerous crowds press in on Jesus. What does Jesus decide to do? It's verses 7 to 12. Point number two, the 12 disciples are called by Jesus. What does Jesus call them to do? That's verses 13 to 19. Let's look at number one, the dangerous crowds press in on Jesus. What does Jesus decide to do? Well, starting in verse 7, you'll notice that Jesus decides to change his course of direction. He's about to reroute from the path he was heading on. Instead of continuing as is in this busy and fruitful season of ministry, he decides to remove himself from the public eye, at least for a little while. Instead of working longer days to meet everyone's pressing needs, he removes himself from any more expectations people were placing on him. Again, notice what Jesus does. He decides not to run to the masses of people. And he does not decide to find a bigger platform, a bigger building, a bigger ministry atmosphere for the growing hordes of people that are flocking to him like wild, hungry geese at the beach. Instead, we read in verse 7, did you notice? Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And what did Jesus do with his disciples? Or maybe more aptly put, what did Jesus instruct his disciples to do? Look over at verses 9 and 10. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Up until this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has spent a lot of time with people. And to add to that, he has spent a lot of time with a whole lot of people. In fact, Mark chapters 1 and 2, we read of scores of people, possibly hundreds that are seeking and searching for Jesus. Jesus has gone from being a no-name man from an obscure town to being the talk of the town, to being the talk of the entire region of Galilee. In Mark chapter 1, we're told the whole city was gathered at Simon Peter's door to be ministered to by Jesus. In Mark chapter 2, he is in a packed house like sardines in a tight little can. And people are surrounding him, earnestly listening to his teaching. But within this one scene, it's gotten so packed that the people who want the front row seat to Jesus can't get that seat. And so they do like any other sane person would do. They get on the roof. They climb the ladder. They walk on the roof. And then not only do they walk on the roof, they don't just knock on the roof. 
They lower a man down through the roof. A man wants to see Jesus. He wants to be healed. And he wants to see Jesus face to face. He wants to see this man from Nazareth they call Jesus. Because Jesus is the Son of Man who possessed the power and authority to heal our bodies and heal our souls. And to add to this full and exhausting schedule, Jesus had already gone toe-to-toe with the elite religious authorities of his day. In fact, over the last three sermons here at CCBC, I'm not sure if you've seen these pericopes or these paragraphs together. We could have easily preached them in one sermon, but I didn't want to be here for six hours. We stared at five different scenes where Jesus is either opposed, accused, suspiciously questioned, or looked down upon with disdain by the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, Jesus' growing popularity wasn't welcomed by everyone. Jesus' popularity had made some people jealous. Jesus' powerful teaching made them skeptical, insecure, because Jesus knew the word of God better than they did. Friends, that's what happens when a man or woman of God is filled with the Spirit. The people who are in the ministry or in the church for the wrong reasons, well, their jealousy and ambition gets exposed. But those who are truly of the Lord and are his sheep will hear their shepherd's voice through that man, through that woman, and they will follow Jesus. They won't be intimidated by their knowledge of the Bible. They will love God more because they're hearing the Bible taught faithfully, maybe even for the first time. We can't forget last week's shocking surprise either, right? Here we are back in the synagogue. Jesus' compassion, Jesus' gracious and miraculous healing on the Sabbath was misinterpreted and misunderstood as signs of being a blasphemer, a Sabbath breaker of all charges. These blind and arrogant Pharisees were just walking legalists. They didn't care for people. They were more concerned about rule following and appearances, keeping up with the Joneses in the religious community. They didn't care about people. They cared more about the praise they could get from people. They didn't love people made in God's image. You see, Jesus wasn't a lawbreaker. Jesus wasn't a Sabbath day rebel. Jesus was liberating freeing these weary and heavy-laden people by giving them true Sabbath rest in him. The same Sabbath rest that he offers to people like you and me, that we can find rest for our souls when we are resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Well, here in Mark chapter 3, as the crowds are flocking to Jesus like geese, And the religious leaders of the day are beginning to boil hot against Jesus. And everything Jesus' ministry represented, Jesus' life was now being threatened. In Mark 3, verse 6, do you recall how we left off last week? Look with me again in Mark 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. So here in this next section of Mark's gospel, the pressures are starting to heat up. Hardened hearts are being exposed in the lives of the scribes, the Pharisees, and these new people, the Herodians. They are not for Jesus. They are not indifferent to Jesus. They're not trying to tolerate Jesus. They're trying to take Jesus out. But there were other people in that community that didn't have hard hearts, but they did have weak and weary hearts. 
There were people crying out to Jesus for mercy. They were the needy, the weary and heavy laden, the afflicted and diseased, the pain-ridden and powerless, and the demonically oppressed. They were all coming out of the woodworks. They didn't wait for an invitation in the mail. They didn't wait for someone to invite them to where Jesus would go. They're going. They're inviting themselves because they see the bread of life has arrived. The light has shined in the darkness. The well where we can drink of a water that wells up to eternal life. You see, these people are hitching up on their horses and donkeys. They're roaming and they're running. They're coming from every conceivable direction in Palestine and even neighboring communities butted up right next to the nation of Israel. In fact, did you notice verses 7 and 8 that the great crowd, it's mentioned multiple times, which speaks of innumerable amounts of people, They were coming not just from Jewish communities. They were not even just coming from local communities. They were coming from all over, Jews and Gentiles alike. Did you notice the locations Mark tells us they were coming from? Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, from beyond the Jordan, And from around Tyre and Sidon. If you are kind of a a nerdy Bible student and you love the maps in the back of your Bible, most of us have those Bibles. If you don't, you can go get a study Bible or you can look at them online. But you can look up those locations on the map and figure out why Mark took time being inspired of the Spirit to point out all these locations. But to give you a basic idea, here's what Mark is conveying to us. These locations would have been as far as 120 miles south of where Jesus was and as far as 50 miles north of where Jesus was. This would be equivalent distance from towns like Dequeen, Arkansas. I I have learned a lot about the state of Arkansas this week, trying to come up with an illustration to be relevant and contextual, looking at towns in Arkansas, so just track with me. Dequeen. Arkansas is approximately 120 miles south of here. And West Fork, Arkansas, is approximately 50 miles north of Fort Smith, Arkansas. If you know where those places are, you're tracking with me. If you don't, well, welcome to my life. The point we're going to glean from these locations here is not Mark just giving us a geography lesson. He's bringing something to bear on our hearts. The fact that it wasn't just Jews coming to hear and see Jesus, or even just a local fanboy club that just wanted to hear the local, quote, hero. People from all over are flocking to Galilee. Why? It's not because traveling got easy all of a sudden. It's not like the weather just remained perfect so that they could travel. No, not weather, not transportation, not anyone inviting them was a reason for them to go or not go. The reason they flocked to Galilee is because Jesus is who he says he is. He is the light to the nations. He is the descendant of David's kingly throne line. And he is the Savior, not just for the Jews, but also for those who are far off and separated from the God of Israel. Gentiles, like you and me. Jesus wasn't some local Jewish hero who started a fad in the local community. Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Jesus is the global physician who came to heal the worst of sinners of their corrupt hearts. Friends, have you ever asked yourself, 
Did Jesus come from heaven to earth to love people like me? You ever asked that before? Well, I could see Jesus coming for those people, but you don't know what I've done in my life. I think God kind of puts up with me, but I don't think he really cares about me. Have you ever asked that question? Did Jesus come to rescue people like me? I think the testimony of Scripture, example after example, shows that God shows no partiality. Friends, you were made by God. You were made for God. And you will only make sense of your life, your past, the murky present, and the future when God becomes your everything. When God becomes your everything. Not your cosmic grandfather that you go to when you need something. Not some celestial Santa Claus. Not just a get out of hell free card. But when God is your life. What did Jeff read earlier out of Jeremiah 9? Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows me, declares the Lord. Friends, the great end and aim of our lives is to know God. He's not some distant, arbitrary, mystical, nebulous idea. He's a real person, a person to know. Friends, do you want to know this God? Do you want to know if he can be trusted? Do you want to understand why so many people picked up, hitched up, and drove, and rode, and walked, and ran as far as they did to find Jesus. Do you want to understand why people began to trust Jesus, who they had known for just a few hours, more than anyone else they had ever trusted their whole life? Friends, put on your thinking caps. Don't gloss over this. If you want to know if God can be trusted, then come to Jesus and find out yourself. You see, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. If you want to know what God is like, then study and seek and stare at Jesus. Jesus is the full and perfect embodiment of grace and truth. John 1, verse 14. You see, Jesus can be trusted. Friends, Jesus can be trusted because Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. Jesus can be trusted because he can meet our greatest need and bring us to God. In Jesus, God makes us new creations. By his spirit living in us, he makes us more and more like Jesus. Listen, I know in a room filled with this size, including the man standing on this stage, we all have trust issues, don't we? There's reasons why you avoid certain people. There's reasons why you avoid certain places, certain churches, certain television shows, certain Twitter feeds. You know why? Because you've been hurt. You've been betrayed. You've been lied to. You've been deeply wounded. We all have trust issues. But friends, you can trust Jesus because he will never forsake you. And friends, Jesus will never sin against you. Jesus won't sin against you. He's the friend of sinners. Whatever Jesus promises you, he will bring it to pass. You see, here in Mark chapter 3, all sorts of people are filled in these crowds. Men and women, Jews and Gentiles, those who were highly educated in the law of God, and those 
who only knew there was a creator because creation testifies to a creator. And their consciences were plagued with guilt and shame. And they realized there is a God and I'm guilty before this God. How can I be reconciled to him? They heard of a man named Jesus. They heard what he was doing. They heard what he was teaching and they trusted him with their whole life. J.C. Ryle once said, no one need ever say I have no friend to turn to so long as Christ is in heaven. Friends, Jesus is the friend of sinners and he stands at the right hand of the Father interceding for all of us who would turn from our sins and put our trust in him. We had read earlier in Mark chapter 1 that John the Baptist was preparing the way of the Lord. And we've learned that the Son of God who became incarnate is Jesus of Nazareth. Truly God, truly man. God in human flesh was walking among sick and sinful people. The light of the nations had come, radiating his bright light, shining through the darkness of sin and suffering. But as we can imagine, and as we study together through Mark's gospel, you will find that if you follow Jesus, things may get pretty intense at times. Have you ever watched some of those scenes on TV? where people are climbed through doors, packed in, in front of malls, all before Black Friday. Trampling on one another to try to get a good deal on something that's really not good of a deal. If you look on the internet, it was probably that sale last year anyway. Whether you're one of those Black Friday shoppers, if you've watched these people fall all over each other, to get a good deal on something. Well, something like that, but way more dangerous, had come into Jesus' life. The neediness of the crowds began to get out of hand. So what did Jesus do? Well, he basically gives his disciples their first instructions. Get an Uber. We are getting out of here. All right, maybe not an Uber. But he told them to grab a boat. A small boat. He said, get it ready. We hightailed it out of here. Getting crazy up in here. Brothers and sisters, I think there are at least two principles we can glean from Jesus' decision here that are applicable to our own life. Number one, know your human limitations by using wisdom and common sense. Know your human limitations by using wisdom and common sense. Uh, there's 24 hours in a day. We all need sleep, we all need to eat, and we can all care for so many people for a period of time. If Jesus in his humanity could not and would not help everyone with their problems in a reasonable way, then what makes you and I think that we can. Let me go back to what I said about five sermons ago. We all need to repent of a little messianic complex. There is no vacancy in the Trinity. The triune God has got it under control. Listen, we all have various energy capacities. We all have different skill sets and professions. We all have different family obligations and responsibilities. But in all our callings, Whatever they may be, we should ask God for wisdom and don't try to do everything for everybody. Listen, you might end up hurting and harming yourself and not help anyone in the process. Principle number two, get others to help you with life's pressing demands. Get others to help you with life's pressing demands. Do you remember earlier how John read from Exodus 18 and how Moses' father-in-law saw that the Lord was doing a great work 
through the people of Israel and really through his leadership, but he saw that Moses was overwhelmed. Let me remind you again, Exodus 18, verses 14 to 23, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know what the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure and all this people also will go to their place in peace. For Jesus, he instructed his disciples to get a small boat for them to get away from the dangerous and never-ending pressing needs of the people. For Moses, he needed to find men who can shoulder the burdens of people's problems and growing disputes throughout the nation of Israel. For you and I, that might begin just by telling a friend how you're really doing. Telling a fellow church member that you're becoming overwhelmed with life's pressing demands. Uh, Maybe you work in a business or an organization where you realize you're doing four people's job. I think respectfully and humbly, you ought to consider talking to your supervisor or manager and asking, are there ways that we can hire more employees to get more help? I don't think that's disrespectful. I think that's humble and realizing your human limitations. That might even mean resigning from a job and to take a job that has a little more margin. Sometimes God uses pressing burdens in our life Not to tell us to, you know, do your best, pick up your bootstraps. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he says endure. Sometimes he says persevere. But sometimes that's his wake-up call to say some major life adjustments need to be made very soon. You may need to sit down and share with someone your life, work, family, and ministry schedule. Humble yourself. Show people how you spend your week. Tell people when you go to bed and when you get up. Explain what your diet is like or lack thereof or exercise or whatever is going on in your life. Listen, that's why God does not call us to live on an island to ourself. You isolate yourself and I isolate myself for too long. We can start to think and do some weird and crazy stuff. Proverbs says we act like fools. We're spiritual blockheads. And what God says is, listen, open your eyes. I'll give you a multitude of counselors to help give you safety so that you can endure the long haul. Sometimes we need people in our life like Jethro that say, hey, what you are doing is not good. Hey, sister. Hey, brother. Take this in love. Good intentions, but foolish execution. CCBC, Lord willing, we will install our first slate of elders this fall. And the elders will help me, Lord willing, shepherd this flock more effectively by God's grace. I'm already meeting with some of these men. 
giving them front load training. So as they on-ramp onto the shepherding task, if they are recognized by the congregation, they will be equipped to shepherd with me. Friends, when you have a plurality of godly qualified men, according to 1 Timothy 3, according to Titus 1, the church will be blessed and the lead pastor will endure. This is not rocket science. It's sanctified common sense. I'd ask you to start praying now that God would raise up those men, that the church would receive those men, and that in time God would bless this church with more gifts of godly men than I could even fathom. Pray that God would bring us also faithful men and faithful women to Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church to put more hands to the plow to disciple. Because, friends, we have faithful men and women right here, men and women who are serving the Lord with zeal and eagerness and diligence, pouring into one another, doing each other spiritual good. But, friends, we ought to pray for more. If we want to have a quote-unquote greater impact for the kingdom, we need more hands to the plow. What did Jesus pray in Matthew 9, verses 37 and 38? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Friends, that's a wise prayer for our life individually, but especially as a local church. Think about how you could make that a prayer as a part of your weekly prayer life for this congregation. There's wisdom for us uh, in different ways in Mark chapter 3. Regardless if you have a title or leadership role in the church, regardless if you're young or old, single or married, we all need to humbly reevaluate how we're stewarding our time and energy. Uh, Friends, that might just be simply taking a break. Not from following Jesus, but take a break from serving in a particular ministry you've given yourself to for the last 10 months. For others, it might mean get off the chair and find what needs the church has and start serving and meeting those needs. Friends, I pray that CCBC would not be another statistic of 10% of the church doing 90% of the work and 90% of the church doing nothing. Friends, I don't think that's true of our church. But we have to stay ahead of the game. May we pray that every member of the body would be contributing in whatever gifts, whatever energy, whatever talents, whatever opportunities God gives us to see his church built up. Well, in Mark 3, verses 11 and 12, Jesus once again is revealing the supernatural nature of his ministry. In particular, his incarnate presence that caused the demons to tremble in terror. As Jesus had already done in the wilderness with the father of lies himself, Satan, and had already caused many demons to be silenced, Jesus would continue to do the same. They would fall down before Jesus and declare, you are the Son of God. Demons knew who Jesus was, But Jesus didn't want demons to be his evangelist. That's not a really good game plan. Gather as many demons you can to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Pack them on a bus and send them over to an unreached people group. Probably not the most clear way of telling people about Jesus. Demons have really good theology, but they don't love Jesus. Demons can declare who Jesus is, but they don't show fruits of the Spirit that bring Jesus glory. So, because Jesus is wise... He closes their mouth and says, enough. I've got a different plan. I've got different evangelists, different ministers, different vessels I'm going to use to tell the world about me. Jesus withdraws from the crowds, not because he's a hermit, not because he doesn't like people, but he draws a small group of men to become his worldwide mission team. Which leads to point number two. The 12 disciples are called by Jesus. What does Jesus call them to do? Now in verses 16 to 19, 
Uh, you can do a character study on your own. That would take forever to go through every single person. But in verses 16 to 19, we read of the names of the men Jesus would call as his 12 disciples, and eventually they would be installed and commissioned as apostles. Uh, a disciple is a student, a learner, a follower of another. An apostle is one who was given authority by Jesus to represent Jesus and proclaim Jesus' message. In time, the apostles would really lay down the foundation of the church with Jesus as the cornerstone, Ephesians 2, verse 20. Now, among these 12, there were, get it now, four fishermen, one former tax collector, one ex-political activist, and the rest, well, we don't know a whole lot of what they did with their life before Jesus. If you study throughout the Gospels, you'll come to realize this was not exactly the NBA dream team that you would look for. They had no really impressive resumes. Some of them were loud and outspoken. Some of them had a foot-shaped mouth. They needed to stick that foot right back in it. Simon called Peter, who typically is quoted the most in the Gospels. And there was James and John, who Jesus named of all nicknames, the sons of thunder. Parents, do you have any children that are just super loud? And you wonder, could God ever use them? Remember James and John, their passionate temperaments gave them the, the nickname sons of lightning and thunder. And among the 12, you are familiar with Thomas, right? Most of us call him what? Doubting Thomas. I think he gets a bad rap, but... It's true, the Gospel of John says he wasn't going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead until he saw and touched with his own eyes. And then there's a demon among the disciples. Outwardly, he's in the group. Outwardly, he knows the theology. But inside, he's got a different agenda. There's Judas Iscariot. If you ever do a study on Judas Iscariot, he always has the ominous tagline next to his name, the one who betrayed him, verse 19. These men were not the strongest in the bunch. They were not the brightest crayons in the box. They certainly weren't the most respected of the religious community. But one thing they did have going for them was that Jesus desired them. Look at verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Jesus summoned these men from the crowds, the men he desired. Jesus got who Jesus wanted. No questions, no exceptions. Jesus got his way because Jesus always gets his way. That's why, friends, if you call yourself a Christian, if I call myself a Christian, salvation is 100% a work of God's grace. Listen, when we talk about, I found Jesus, I found Jesus, and then I scratch my head and go, I didn't know Jesus was lost. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. You may have come to Jesus, but the Spirit of God drew you to Jesus effectually in love. Friends, we love him because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19, we choose to follow Jesus, yes, because in love he first chose us to follow him. That's why the Apostle Paul would later remind the Christians in Thessalonica of God's sovereign love in saving them. We read in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 and 5, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Or again, we read of God's love in Christ being shown to us and how God has chosen a people for his own glory, 
Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Brothers and sisters, this beautiful reality, this glorious doctrine of election should not cause us to debate with one another. When you rightly understand what we deserve and you rightly understand the mercy that God has shown us in Christ, the doctrine of election will cause God's people to rejoice, not debate, not fight, not question God if he's fair. Friends, God has always been fair. And God will always be just. The whole world deserves to be condemned under his holy gaze. If he saves anyone, to God be the glory. Oh, friends, this beautiful reality should humble the most proud sinners among us. Knowing that there wasn't anything in us, there wasn't anything in these 12 disciples that Jesus desired. No, Jesus loves us, and Jesus loved them because he chose to love them. He loved us because he loved us. That's the story of the Old and New Testament. Why does God love anyone? Because he chose to. It's his very essence, his very being, to show this amazing love. God chose to save a people for himself, not because we are the most desirable and beautiful in a sight. It is actually quite the opposite. We read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Follow the logic of Paul's argument. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus calls all his sheep to follow him. And all those who are truly his sheep will in time hear his voice and they will follow him. John chapter 10. What a glorious chapter. Study more about that sometime. But here in Mark 3, there was a particular group of his sheep that the father and son had set apart for a particular purpose of reconstituting the people of God. As the 12 tribes of Israel had largely apostatized in centuries past and never recovered, and as the bulk of Israel in Jesus' own day had not been a faithful witness of Yahweh either. Jesus' 12 disciples were now showing the first fruits of God's new covenant plan. These men would set up the foundation of the church, as I said earlier, as Christ as the cornerstone. When Jesus looked at his disciples in Matthew 16, namely Peter first and then the apostles, upon this rock I will build my church upon the apostles and apart on their confession. These men would eventually turn the world upside down for the sake of the gospel. And then missionaries, men and women that would be sent out from these early churches that the apostles would equip and appoint, they would be sent out 
to see the gospel spread. We would even see one apostle, one untimely born, he says, that Jesus would meet on the road to Damascus and call to be one of his apostles. One that would reach to the ends of the earth in a way that these men never could. A few of these men became authors of Holy Scripture. All but one would suffer for the faith as they obeyed their Lord in this commissioning. But even the one disciple who would betray Christ, Judas Iscariot, out of his own demonic and hateful and sinful and greedy heart, was still being used for good by God in the grand plan of salvation history. So what does Jesus call these men to do? Jesus withdraws from the crowds because Jesus has a different mission in mind than being a circuit healer or a crowd pleaser or a debater with religious authorities. Jesus has a greater mission. Jesus knew how precious his time on earth was. He really was, as Richard Baxter said, he preached as a dying man to dying men. So what was so urgent? What was so clear for Jesus to do with these men? Well, he basically tells them two things. That they would prepare for future ministry by first spending quality time with Jesus. And number two, they would be sent out in time to fulfill their ministry by preaching the gospel and casting out demons. Did you notice that brief phrase in verse 14, right before Jesus tells them what they're going to do. That brief reason why he called the 12 to himself, that they would first learn that is vitally important before you go be sent out to do things for Jesus. Look with me again at verse 14. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. That's the sweet tea of the verse right there. That's the juice that's fallen from the stake right there. Before Jesus would send them out on their God-ordained callings, he would simply tell them to be with him. Stay with him. Spend quality time and intimate fellowship with him. Learn from him. Watch him. Listen to him. Consider how he loves and serves others including the 12, that he would wash their feet. Reflect upon how he would spend his time. Reflect upon the things he said yes to and no to. Study and inquire. They were listening to their Lord preach, and they would be amazed when they saw their Lord pray. Because Jesus wanted them to be like him. That's what a real rabbi, that's what a real discipler does. He doesn't or she doesn't say, do what I say, but don't do what I do. No, a real follower of Jesus says, by the grace of God, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You see, before Jesus would die on the cross, before Jesus would resurrect from the dead, before he would give them the great commission in Matthew 28 to go into all the world and make disciples of Jesus, before we see the book of Acts explode with Jesus' church planting plan, before we see stories after stories of men and women throughout church history who have sacrificed their lives on the mission field for the cause of Christ, and before even us at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church talk about all the wonderful things God has done in and through our lives. Friends, it all began with what Jesus thought was vitally important on that day. Preparation for gospel ministry always begins with communing with Jesus. You can't pour out if you haven't been poured in. 
You cannot expect to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to minister to the masses if you don't know what it's like to be filled with the Spirit by being emptied of yourself. In prayer, all of us, our biggest problem is not that we are so strong. We just don't understand how weak we are. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Jesus told them, don't even think about reaching the nations. Don't even think about 10 things you want to do on your bucket list for Jesus. I first want you to learn how to be with me. Stay close to me. Commune with me. You see, preparation for gospel ministry always begins by imitation before we can be sent out for multiplication. Friends, that's why the testimony of the apostles, when they were being persecuted, people didn't really just say, wow, what a great preacher. Wow, they're so bold. Notice where they got their boldness from. Acts 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. Yeah, that's very encouraging. They were astonished. Why were they astonished? It's not because they had a full resume. It's not that they had 20 years of ministry experience. Did you notice what Luke says? And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, even among the 12 that spent more time with Jesus than the masses ever could, there were only three who got the sneak peek into Jesus' life on a more personal basis. Do you remember them? Peter? James and John? They're sometimes called the inner three. Jesus' inner circle. Who would want to be a part of Jesus' small group? I mean, to the wind with signing up, I just want Jesus' small group. It's going to be fantastic. I mean, he can turn water into wine. He can feed the 5,000. I mean, he's the walking word of God. Who would not want to be a part of that small group? You see, we're not told why these three became an inner circle with Jesus. Uh, we don't need to speculate too much. I mean, of course, Jesus did use these three in some pretty profound ways. But we just need to accept that Jesus' humanity... And Jesus' wise way of investing in a few to reach the masses was a much wiser investment of his time than trying to reach everyone by himself. I think there's wisdom for us here this morning. If we want to spend ourselves for the sake of the gospel, we should multiply ourselves by investing in a few. If we want to spend ourselves for the sake of the gospel, we should multiply ourselves by investing in a few. John MacArthur has made a keen observation, probably one that you have made too. I think it's a helpful word for us in the life of our church these days. He says this, Jesus kept three men very close to him, Peter, James, and John. Next came Andrew, and then the others, obviously in declining degrees of close friendship, if Christ in his perfect humanity could not pour equal amounts of time and energy into everyone he drew around him, no leader should expect to be able to do that. Jesus didn't entrust himself to the masses because he knew what was in the heart of many of those people. John 2, verses 23 to 25. Did Jesus trust everyone? Uh-uh. You know why? Because he knows what's inside us. John chapter 2 is a good proof text to be reminded of that. But Jesus wasn't so trust avoidant that he never entrusted anyone with anything. You see, friends, he had a smaller group that he would entrust to. Jesus realized his human limitations as a man by wisely investing in a few. Brothers and sisters, you and I should not trust everyone. But you and I should trust those who are characterized by faithfulness to Jesus. Let me say that again. You and I should not trust everyone. That's foolishness. Don't cast your pearls to swine. 
Just read the entire Bible. But you should trust, I should trust, those who are characterized by faithfulness to Christ. You see, first and foremost, God in Christ is to be trusted with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. We should all trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, Proverbs 3, verse 5. But if we want to make disciples who make disciples, we need to spend ourselves and be around others who are mature in the faith than we are. Before we even consider the possibilities of leadership or being used of God greatly out in our community and around the world, we first need to learn to sit and learn while we imitate Christ that we see in others. Before I did the pastoral internship at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, I had just come off of a two-year bivocational ministry, you know, working the 55, 60 hours a week, raising two kids under five. I was exhausted, worn out, thinking the Lord was done with me in ministry. And then in God's good providence, he allowed me to go do an internship at a much larger church, at a much more well-staffed church, and a healthier church. And I remember talking to an older, wiser man, Alan, at Knollwood, 70 years old, sat me down. I was going to do some painting and pressure washing out in his house in the middle of nowhere, Virginia. He said, how, how are you thinking about your next line of ministry, your, your next internship? And I said, man, I just, I mean, I just, I'm ready to get in there and encourage brothers. And, and I was listing off a few things. And he said, well, what's your reading plan like? Well, we had to read 7,500 pages, 50, uh, 50, we had to write 50 papers, and we got to be at like everything. And he said, brother, it sounds like the Lord is going to teach you how to sit and receive for a season. Sit and receive for a season. Because one day he's going to send you back out. But you need to first sit and receive for a season. Friends, sometimes we do too much. We're too much Martha. (laughs) Always spinning the wheels, but we're not sitting and receiving so that we can pour out. Consider what that might look like in your life. This week, maybe even the rest of this year. If we want to spend ourselves for the sake of the gospel, we should multiply ourselves by investing in a few. Paul told Timothy, you guys should know this verse by now, 2 Timothy 2.2, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Who should you trust above all else? You should trust in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But we should also trust and seek to imitate our Lord with those who are walking with Jesus more maturely than we are. And then over time, after we have sat and received, we should invest in others and entrust to them what God has taught and formed in us. That's God's discipleship plan. Before we are sent, we learn to sit, receive, and commune with Jesus. Let's pray.